0: Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave with Foodie Pharmacology. Um, On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Ayurvedic medicine. It's one of the oldest systems of medicine known to mankind and has a focus in the healing process, which is on cleansing the body and reestablishing harmony and balance. In addition to being a standalone system of medicine, it's also used in integrative health practices. In this episode, I'm going to speak with a practitioner of both allopathic, or Western medicine, as well as Ayurvedic medicine. We're going to explore what Ayurveda is all about and also how diet factors into health and healing in the system of medicine. So let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Baswati Bhattacharya is a Harvard-educated, licensed, board-certified, holistic physician trained in family medicine and preventive medicine. She's also a published scientist trained in pharmacology, neuroscience, and Ayurveda. She's an award-winning educator and a best-selling author. She has served as a clinical assistant professor of family medicine in the Department of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York since 2003. And she's recently completed a PhD in Ayurvedic chemistry, pharmaceutics, and pharmacology, focusing on polyherbal formulations for diabetes. There's been a documentary film on her work called Healer's Journey into Ayurveda that's on the Discovery Channel. Her first book, which is Everyday Ayurveda, is a national bestseller published by Penguin Random House in 2015. I'm super excited to speak with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Sandra. Great. Well, where are you dialing in from today? I am actually
1: sheltered in place in Udupi while the international borders are closed. So I have no way to get back to my home in New York. Oh, boy. Well... I bet it's a beautiful place, though, to be (laughs) if you have to be somewhere. I will say I'm in an ocean side tropical forest, and I'm literally watching coconuts grow, which I've never done before, actually. They're literally growing in front of my eyes every day. And it is much cooler because the monsoons have been going on. So it's actually
0: nicer than New York in a lot of ways. That's really great. (laughs) Well... To start off with, why don't we begin with just some basics around Ayurveda. What is Ayurveda? What does that term even mean? Well, as you said, Ayurveda
1: is an ancient form of medicine. It looks like it was uh, in place about 10,000 years ago from the Vedas, the time of the Vedas, and only put into writing about 5,000 years ago. So people say it's a 5,000-year-old system. It has been on the subcontinent of India for these 5,000 years. And in the last few hundred years, it's actually spread to the West, meaning Europe and then to America. And it's a system that has a few tenets that many systems of medicine believe in. One, it says that when we align with nature, which is always in balance, we also come into balance. Two, is it says that the energy of nature is very important for rebalancing the energy and the biochemistry and the physics of our own being. So there's a lot of emphasis on natural rhythms and natural foods that are herb based. And the third is that if we are out of balance, it asks us to go into understanding these principles of physiology and biochemistry, which are termed vata, pitta, kapha, the doshas, the channels of the body called srotas and the tissues of the body called pattis. Cool.
0: So, what's what's fascinating uh, about your training is that you have both allopathic and Ayurvedic training. How do these systems, where you have one that's very focused on balance, and perhaps allopathic medicine is not as focused on balance; it's more focused on kind of disease resolution. How do you merge these in your in your practice and your way of living?
1: So I actually started out as a bench scientist.
0: Uh, my first degree
1: was in pharmacology and neuroscience, and I learned about logic and science and how to seek cause and effect. And then I took that into public health where I saw it on a mass scale of populations. And then I went to medical school, and MD means allopathic medicine medical school, where, as you said, they focus on organs and disease and sy- systems that are very separated from each other not just because of anatomy and physiology but because the reality of today's way of practicing medicine is super specialty medicine so because i didn't want to get involved with that super specialty way and because i was in chicago where there's a lot of primary care um i went into family medicine and one of the things that also led to that is in my fourth year i did a pediatric infectious disease rotation in which i was in africa where everyone did everything so after having that way of looking at things and traveling in so many places around the world, it just seemed natural to me to try to bridge the medicine that international populations use. So I always had this dream that I was going to do something at the World Health Organization. But then when I saw that their traditional medicine program, which you well know, says that something like 75% of people in the pla- on the planet use the traditions of their ancient cultures and that really fascinated me so from allopathy i never thought of myself as departing from it because i really love many parts of science but i found myself wanting to use a system that incorporates that holistic way of thinking and then i ran into the whole uh utilization management and the malpractice and all the things in modern medicine which don't really take care of the patient, they take care of the economic system. It's the business of
0: medicine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's the business.
1: And so I decided I wanted to um, learn more holistically. So I started learning many different systems like you did. And in medical school, I worked with a man, Norman Farnsworth, who was a great medicinal chemist and traditional medicine person. So I would say that I've been blending it for many years. I also looked at the NIH Office of Alternative Medicine in its very early days. And so we talked about what it is to both use science and use medicine and meld them. So I think your question about how do you meld them um, for patients, and I've thought about this a lot because most of our colleagues, as you know, don't do that. If you stay focused, if you stay focused on the patient, patient patient-centered care, Mm -hmm. the mountain, whichever way you look at it, looks different. But if you always stay focused on the mountain, you will find a way to climb it. And so the patient is always in the center of my care. Some patients say, I really want to use allopathic medicine, but I would kind of like to get at the root cause of this through something holistic. Others say, I really want to use Ayurveda, but I don't want to let go of my modern medicine, or I can't because my insurance will abandon me if I don't do what the insurance prescription says. I have shaped my entire medical career. Is well, hang on one, so,
0: one second. We had a we had a little blip where it cuts you out. Let's start back to where you said um, you were talking about how patients, um, what, I think the last line was around patients not wanting to give up allopathic care also because of insurance. Sorry, you were on a great roll and it just like the internet went out. Um, let's see. How do I get back to that? Patients are...
1: You're saying patients want, did, was that
0: before maybe, or after the mountain? Maybe, how about I ask you a question and we'll pick up with my question to you. Yeah, so okay. so this is a great analogy of scaling the mountain and like how do you put patients at the center? What, what are patients asking for when they're looking for these integrative practices?
1: Patients are generally asking to have their ailment cured. Many times pain is involved. So they're not saying, I only want to use homeopathy no matter what, or I only want to use herbs, they're saying get rid of my pain. And mm-hmm. so if a patient says, I really want to use herbs, but I don't want to let go of my modern medicine because of insurance reasons, we work with that. Or if they say, I really want to use Ayurveda, but um, I'm also interested in naturopathy, or I'm interested in foods. Or if they say, I eat food every day, can we use that because it's going to be cheaper for me? I try to focus on how the patient wants to approach their own care. And that way they're also more adherent to their care. And I try to keep the logistics in mind and advise the patient that, you know, because of your insurance, you'll want to take these medicines for some time and then talk to your doctor and have your primary care doctor wean you off of them. So we work with where the patient's at. And as long as we are patient-centered, integrative medicine becomes not only possible, it
0: becomes very easy to to, to implement. That's great. Well, let's start maybe when you're thinking about interventions through Ayurvedic care. At the very heart of many forms of traditional medicine are herbs. And so what are the roles of medicinal herbs in Ayurvedic medicine? Are we talking about the use of dietary supplements or teas, or is it more around integration of spices into the diet? What are some of the different ways that you integrate herbs into your Ayurvedic kind of care plan for chronic disease? So there
1: are many tripods in Ayurveda. One says, um, ahara vihara oshadam ahara is a sanskrit word for food vihara is the sanskrit word for lifestyles and oshadam is the sanskrit word for medicines in whatever form Mm -hmm. not always in pills but oftentimes in liquids or in um poultices or other forms so ayurveda sees that all three of those are medicines if you have Foods in the wrong way, lifestyle in the wrong way, then they actually work against the medicine as we're talking about it. Ayurveda says you have three opportunities a day to poison yourself. They're called breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Ayurveda says you have three opportunities a day to medicate yourself. They're called breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so they <laughs> emphasize the importance of food in the Formulation Spices are in another tripod where they say food is on one side, spices are in the middle, and herbs are on the other side. So in that tripod, they say that you can use foods and it's cultural based. Why? Because the foods that grew in that location with that weather pattern, with that group of people were the foods that were available. You couldn't just run down the store to the supermarket and get something from Guatemala or something from Alaska. So you had to eat what was available. So that's the food part. Spices were not only portable, but they were dryable and usable at different times of the year. They were usable in small amounts, so you didn't run out of them. And of course, they're portable in terms of being across ships. So As you know, the first main spice and still the number one spice in the world that is traded and that is available as a medicine, but
2: also known as a spice, is black pepper. And that originates actually from where I am sitting right now. I'm on the Malabar coast, uh, just a, a kilometer or so away from the ocean. And on this coast in southwest India, black pepper is considered to be a medicine. So there are at least 100 different ways of using black pepper we use it in oil and we make that oil and it's very good for skin disease we use spice in our food and we use it in a variety of specific medicines with other herbs is polyherbal herbal formulation even though they're spices so spices are definitely a part of ayurveda and they are sometimes considered food and sometimes considered medicinal herbs
0: that's great I love I love the example of black pepper. It's definitely one of my favorite medicinal spices. And yeah, I mean, yeah, it was like one of my first episodes because it's it's amazing how the way that you prepare it really matters to the pharmacology. You know, I mean, if, if, if the listeners haven't listened to the black pepper episode, definitely do it because you're going to learn all about why it's important to use freshly ground black pepper, not the pre-ground stuff because of the pharmacology. But what's fascinating to me around around Ayurveda and Indian cuisine in general are these polyherbal formulations um, of mixtures of spices. There's not just it's not just for flavor it's because of the medicinal activity those specific mixtures have. I'm thinking especially of um, combinations of black pepper and turmeric and other ginger relatives. Can you expand on that, like how these combinations kind of appear in Ayurvedic formulas and how important or where does this knowledge come from? How did people figure out how to combine these or or is that even known? Sorry, there's like so many questions I have.
2: (laughs) That is fascinating for a lot of doctors, MDs like myself, because modern medicine, we just look at things, we name them. The basis of modern medicine is just naming stuff. And you find that something does something and you just name it. And the names have some kind of root word, but they rarely have to do with the underlying physiology. Ayurveda, on the other hand, has several principles that absolutely inextricably tie it to physiology. For example, they have six tastes, sweet, sour, salty, pungent, bitter, astringent. They don't talk about umami because umami is now being understood not as a glutamate uh, receptor, but rather as a combination of pungent and some astringent, which is what we find in meat or in some of the mushrooms where we find umami. Those correlate, according to Ayurveda, with a wreath of chemicals in the brain and what they call the mind, the brain, uh, thinking mind and in the gut and they release different kinds of the fires that are required for digestion you don't have like a little campfire in your gut you know if you open it up you're not going to see a campfire campfires are in air right so if you look in the campfire in, in a uh, setting of like a campground you'll see the fire is in there when that same fire burns in the water medium of the stomach or the intestines it has digestive chemicals, digestive enzymes that they were referring to, and those spices invoke taste. Now, you and I both know, as pharmacologists, that there are taste receptors all throughout the body. And when that was discovered, like almost 10 years ago, people were like, "Why are there taste receptors? You know, like at the bottom of the testicles or like at the, you know, in the in the esophagus where you're you you can not taste anything." why are we finding them in all different tissues of the body well ayurveda talks about how that taste has something called faka which is a taste that you'll have as you're digesting it but there's also vipaka afterwards and so those chemicals after they've been digested and brought from the gut into the body still exerts a taste effect that kind of tags them so these spices have those tags you and i might call them glycosides or specific molecules that are traveling around that make it past the gut enzymes without being digested and broken down, and they kind of make it into the body and exert their effect that way. Ayurveda didn't talk about it in terms of biochemistry. They talked about it in terms of the effect it had physiologically on the body of either increasing the dryness or increasing the moistness or the unctuousness of the body, increasing the heat or increasing the cold of the body and so the way that these spices are matched up is to balance so if something is really dry it's going to be matched up with something that's really moist or if you want to have a super drying effect you'll put two dry things together and that's what you see with turmeric and black pepper turmeric is a fibrous root it's hot and very pungent, and it can actually burn and if you have a tendency for heartburn or hyperacidity, and you eat a lot of raw turmeric you'll get esophageal ovaric to actually start bleeding out of your sausage. So when people are eating lots of raw turmeric, I tell them, be careful. The black pepper cooks it, it digests it. So it's the body, rather than erupting in this fire from the turmeric, it digests it, it clears it through. And so black pepper is one of the ways of heating it up and making it, as we call it, bioavailable. And that's why that combination is so revered in western world where they don't actually cook the turmeric as a powdered spice in the cooking
0: it's just amazing how so we have these combinations of of spices that come together in different foods for health and ayurvedic practice how does this differ from fields like naturopathy or clinical nutrition
2: that's such a great question and i actually spent a lot of time explaining this to Naturopathy and clinical nutrition both believe in the paradigm of the systems, the way that germ theory and cell theory have brought our modern anatomy and modern physiology into the place that they are today. And they dovetail from that. So they don't see the body from a different angle, the mountain from a different angle that Ayurveda is. Ayurveda doesn't say that germ theory means that the virus or the bacterium causes the disease, which is definitely what naturopathy and uh, modern medicine say. Mm -hmm. Ayurveda says a seed, even if planted, cannot grow unless the soil allows it to. Mm -hmm. And so if a virus comes into the body, the host must be so strong that it doesn't allow that seed to take root. So that's called shamatva in Sanskrit, that means resisting the disease. So if you take a modern medicine evidence that you take 10 people in a room and you give them uh, exposure to someone that has a cold who's sneezing and sneezing, if it's a common cold, there's only four out of those 10, maybe five, that are going to get sick. If it's super virulent, it might be six. But 10 out of 10 don't get sick. And we know that in modern medicine and that's standard epidemiology that we know in modern medicine. Why don't those four people or five get sick? Mm. Because people say, well, they just have a, a more robust constitution, or they just have a better immune system. Well, so what they're actually pointing toward is that there's a role for the host immune system to prevent something from coming in. So I'm going to give an example of that in these modern times. I do a lot of work with health professionals who want to go holistic but are trapped in the modern medical system because it's their job, they have a mortgage, they have, uh, you know, they have the, the, the trappings of being where they are and they can't expand into a new career. So they see me either as a patient um, and so they want to learn how to change their lives, their food and their uh, ability to make themselves stronger or they want to learn how to live a healthier lifestyles. So there's a whole bunch of nurses that are seeing me right now because of COVID, because of working every day and having to work every day. Some of them were afraid. But I asked them, how many of you guys are getting COVID? And one of the nurses said, well, I have like one person out of the 40 of us. And I said, so why is it that 39 of you didn't get sick? Is it just that we have a good immune system? And the consensus among health professionals is that if you keep the host very strong, if you exercise, if you eat good clean food, if you drink enough water, if you go to bed on time, if you really get your morning and evening walk in, if you keep up your relationships, these are things that are so constitutional mm-hmm. that they actually keep us healthy. On some level, we know that's true, but they have to toe the line which is oh it's the virus causing the disease, so that goes for any virus, whether it's hepatitis or whether it's the common cold or anything else. And so Ayurveda really talks about the constitution of the person
0: and the host. So, one example. Yeah, that's that's um, a great that's a great example of how important it is to maintain health to have peak immunity, and I think that this is something that many people across the globe are struggling with right now because of covid lockdowns and uh, restrictions we're not getting as much exercise perhaps we're not eating as well as we normally would um and people are in a state of high stress as well so from a from just from a ayurvedic dietary perspective let's say that if we change those habits and start getting some more of those moderate exercise, get the sleep we need, and um, you know, work on managing stress, what else can we do from a dietary perspective to really improve our overall sense of health? Do you have any general recommendations that you give to patients? I do. So, if people say, Look, I want to do
2: Ayurveda, but I don't want you to take my food away from me, okay? I heard that Ayurveda is very restrictive. So, what I'm saying is, you can eat whatever you want as long as you can track the source of it and make sure that you know what the source of it is.
0: Oh, that's, that's really hard today.
2: <laughs> well, so you're saying that, but you know, one day to someone, they usually pause and think, and they'll say, Okay. So, I say, so do you know when that slice of bread was in the amber waves of grain, you know, growing as a, a wheat grass? Do you know when that cow was fed and how it was fed and when that carcass actually was made into meat and then made into that spam or that, you know, that hot dog that you eat? But you know where the food is coming from and you can eat it. And by doing that people become conscious of their food choices. I don't tell them they can't eat anything because people do have diets from all over the world. And America is an amazing country that's a melange of so many cultures. So there are people that are militant vegan and there are people that are militant meat eaters. There are people that hate dairy because milk is for baby cows. And there are people that love milk and they love their turmeric latte every night. So we have people that eat all kinds of things. We also have like people eating insects there was a restaurant in Moscow where they would have host, host, host or insects to eat. And there are people that love growing all kinds of um, ungenetically modified vegetables. Ayurveda says eat local, it says eat fresh so that the bioenergy that is in that plant or animal can transfer to your being because there is a vibration. There's a bioenergetic vibration. There's a bio. if we can use that modern word. Um, which is very new age. But when people say to me, you believe in that kind of stuff, aren't you a doctor? I say, well, you know, when you put an EKG on someone, they tell you to step back. Why do they tell you to step back? When a person has their heart stopping, you're going to do uh, the defibrillators, right, the, um, when they say clear and they have you step back. Why do they have you step back so you don't get shocked? Well, there's an electricity that's running through your system that allows the EKG to report electricity. So that bioelectricity that we know is existent hasn't been tapped by modern medicine. Is there in physics? Is there in actually Eastern European concepts of medicine? we developed a lot of it in the Eastern uh, Europe and Russian um, areas. It's in Ayurveda, and we talk about bioelectric Beingness, that bioelectric uh, power that we get when we eat fresh food, and that is why Ayurveda says know the source of your food. So once I say that, they say, "Well, that's really easy. I'll just go down the street and I'll just eat, you know, whatever lettuce." I say, "But make sure you find out when that lettuce was last growing as fresh lettuce." And so as they learn foods, they get smarter, and they uh, find that it
0: changes. What that's, I also do is I teach them something else. What? I said, that's what? That's so, um, that's just brilliant because it, it, it hits me that this concept of eating local while well, I think many of us think of this as like a new thing. Oh, eat local. It's, you know, it's good for your health, but this has actually been something that's been in practice for thousands and thousands of years. And we know from a phytochemistry perspective that the plant chemistry is different when you have fresh local food than when it's been harvested unripe and been stored. Um, You mentioned lettuce. Many people don't realize that, you know, heads of cabbage may be harvested and kept in cold storage for months before it ever reaches your plate. And so what does that do to, you know, whether it's, it's the phytochemistry or this idea of the bio, bioenergy of a food or what nutritive value it brings, it definitely is impacted. There is an impact. And yet we still don't fully understand what that impact is, but there is something happening there.
2: Can, can I give you another example that blew me away? Yeah. So we all learn that sugar is bad for you. And in fact, my uh, second PhD work, as you mentioned, is on poly herbal formulations for diabetes. So we
1: always learn that sugar is bad, sugar is bad. So It turns out that sugar cane, which is where sugar crystals come from, is actually used very differently um, and has been used very differently in Latin America as well as in India uh, about 150 to 200 years ago. So my boyfriend was telling me the story that he actually got hepatitis A when he was in college and he got taken to the uh, area, the hospital on campus. And he was a student union president, so he got all this VIP care, and they were trying to help him, giving him the best medicines and the best. And he was very jaundiced, and it was getting worse. And he, they, there was nothing they could do. They weren't able to help him right then. So he got a call from his grandmother who said, get home right now. No more English medicine. And so <laughs> she had him shuttled home with his you know, um, friends and roommates who took him, and she made him— take fresh sugar cane and bite on it, chew it, and suck it, and have an entire stick of it twice a day. And he was like, well, I'm really tired. Can't you do this, you know, the mechanical squeezing for me? She said, no, because it's not medicinal unless you chew it. So if you go to the ancient books 5,000 years ago in Sanskrit, there's a book called the Ashtanga Hridayam, which is um, what I teach from every week in our nutrition classes, there is a set, uh, there's a subset that t- talks about sugarcane and says that when you harvest the sugar cane, there are many species, whether it's in Jamaica or in, uh, Mississippi or in India, you have to take it out of the ground, cut it, cut off the edges because that's where the insects will bite at it and take the middle part of it and bite on it. And so if I looked into why, because, you know, as we teach it, we kind of want to know the reasons. turns out when you bite it, you release lectins from those canals where the uh, xylem and phloem are flowing yeah. in, in the sugar chain, right? And that somehow releases the sugar and gives a kind of tag on it so that it doesn't... Behave the same way in the body that crystallized sugar does.
0: Yeah, and just just and they, so the yeah, audience uh, knows what lectins are too. These are plant proteins that are that are released. So yeah, you're getting this other this other kind of element uh, to the to this. It's not just the crystallized sugar. That's interesting.
1: That and then they talk about using not molasses, which is a thick stuff, but after it hardens and becomes these cubes, mm-hmm. which are called jaggery in in the Indian form, they have all the minerals in them. And so patients that have diabetes or early, you know, pre-diabetes, I tell them to take a little bit of juggery instead of taking their white sugar. Mm-hmm. And the minerals seem to replenish. There's a high amount of zinc. You know, now we're finding out about the minerals that are in our plant foods that get ripped away, vitamins and minerals that get ripped away when we process them. Ayurveda talks about being in touch with those foods because those minerals are still in place. And so these of examples really inspire me to tell um, the stories from the ancient textbooks from the Sanskrit into the English so that people will see that there are things that we can do that slowly shift us. We don't have to leave our diet completely, but as we choose foods differently, like rice around the world, it is the most bio compatible food group to the human system, according to Ayurveda. So you should always start the day, not with fruit, not with a smoothie, not with a cup of coffee, but with rice. So either you have a rice, a little bit of rice, like a teaspoon of rice, or you even have rice grains that are raw and you have like a half teaspoon of those to start your day. And that's a ritual, That almost every indian follows without even knowing that there's an ayurvedic nutrition basis to it because it's become cultural
0: yeah well you know speaking about refinement of sugars and and this idea about consumption of rice and ayurvedic theory it it brings up another element to the discussion on foods and that's of food cultivars so the rice that we consume today is not the rice that would have been consumed historically in ayurveda it would have i mean you have types of rice or varieties of rice that would have perhaps been uh darker thicker in their coatings not as not as just you know these little sugar puff (laughs) rice varieties that we eat today so how does ayurveda delve into different varieties of rice and health values at all or is it just kind of it was based on what was encompassed at that time I just taught an entire
1: section on rice uh, <laughs> to my students, so I, I had to look into all this. So it turns out there's an international rice research institute, and the rice revolution occurred in the 70s when they needed to find rice for malpra- for malnutrition uh, all around the world. Mm-hmm. And they decided that it was better to have these, these modified varieties that required less water, that took less days to grow, that could grow more densely, that were chock full of more, quote unquote, carbohydrate, fat and protein, nutrition and vitamins and minerals. And they've even talked about inserting genes so they can get medicines across in the rice to people. Ayurveda says that the natural rice that grows in your area is what you should be eating because the air that is breathed by the rice as it grows is the air that you breathe. The water that the rice drinks from the soil and from the paddy fields is the water that you drink. The earth that it lives on is the earth that you're on. So you should have local rice. So if you come to India, there is rice for the foreigners because they come and they want their basmati rice. And then there's the local rice and they put it in the local language. And you have to know that this is the local rice. It is not the cultivar. And Ayurveda says that the red rice with the light um, brand coating on top mm-hmm. is very good for you. You can take off the husk or you could not take it off. There's about five different steps, as you know, and having those different steps on or off and how you not only um, harvest them, but how you store them. Not only how you store them, but how you process them. And not yeah. only how you process them, but how you cook them. So the best is to cook a soupy version of the red coated rice, which is white inside, Mm -hmm. And to have it in the morning, and that will increase your digestive fire. So this is one of the things that I tell to my irritable bowel syndrome patients. And I have to set up the prescription for them according to their body type and their Mm -hmm. symptoms. But they heal. And I watch people heal so quickly from these local rice rices. They also say you should age rice at least six months before you eat it. Because when the rice is...
0: Now when right. you say age, I'm sorry, when you say age, is there a fermentation step involved there? Because a lot of foods are also transformed through fermentation, which can also change the, uh, the nutritive value of foods. That's right. So there are three
1: places where you can talk about age. One is how long does it take to grow until it's harvested. Mm-hmm. Another is after it's harvested, how long do you store it? So that's what I was talking about, the aged mm-hmm. rice. And when you see aged rice, like if you search Amazon, you'll see it says aged rice. That's what they're talking about. And then there's taking the rice and rinsing it and letting it sit in water for a period of time and soaking it. Mm -hmm. And that, if you do it for long enough, will actually start to ferment, right? So you can either do it then, or you can soak it in water, rinse it out, take that rinse and put it aside, and then put it in clean water, grind the rice, and then let it sit and ferment. And that's the basis of the dosas and the idlis that uh, South Indians eat. And almost every culture has some form of fermentation, as you know very well. And so the rice fermented foods are really good for certain kinds of people, not for everyone, but if your fire is already high and you need a certain amount of um, stoking of your gut microbiome, it's really good for that. Oh,
0: that's great, that's great. Well, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, just I think we really underestimate in allopathic medicine just how important diet is to the overall well-being of of patients. Um, We battle so many different chronic diseases, which you've already mentioned, diabetes, um, you know, uh, obesity, uh, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease pain, chronic pain, is a major issue for many people. And of course, it's not just diet. Like you mentioned, these other lifestyle factors play into that. But when you're thinking about patients dealing with pain, are there any specific dietary choices they should consider? Yeah. So there's actually a very standard approach
1: to pain in Ayurveda. Um, So I want to just say a couple of things. One is when people have pain, we need to look at where their nutrition is coming from. Mm-hmm. Because in order to get food or medicine through the system, we have to know that they're digesting. If they're not digesting well and their their gut, like the mouth to anus channel is mm-hmm. clogged up, we need to clean it out. So that's usually the first thing that an Ayurvedic doctor assesses. And then we try to build up their fire. That concept of Agni has mm-hmm. a concept of undigested food, which is called ama. So we assess that right away. And as we get rid of ama from the gut, it kind of osmosis out from other parts of the body and makes its way out. Pain is caused by the presence of that ama. So drawing that out from the nooks and crannies of the body and getting it out is what reduces the pain. In the process of that, there's actually many foods that we use that help push things down and out. So for example, raisins, grape juice, and medicines made from raisins are used to push things down and out. Um, Spinaches, the the spinach leaves, uh, using foods that will push things down and forward includes like the the rice gruel or the Mm -hmm. watery starch. So there's a whole bunch of Foods that we will recommend people to have. And then we'll also say, you know what, based on your constitution, you probably won't do as well if you drink a lot of alcohol. So have 30 mLs, which is a shot per day and have it with like a raisin type thing It So put grape juice, half and half, um, what's called an arishta, which is a, a medicinal alcohol. And they'll give that to people to help them push things down and out. After that's done, they'll give them herbs that are specifically designed for pain. So there's a myth that Ayurveda doesn't treat pain. Ayurveda doesn't have antibiotics. Ayurveda isn't fast at treating diseases. Ayurveda doesn't treat real diseases like cancer or neurodegenerative disease. As a person that's been using Ayurveda in my practice for over 15 years, it absolutely does those things. But generally, we don't I don't take time anymore to explain to my doctor colleagues because they kind of come to me with a challenge, you know, they want to box. And I just say to them, you know what? Not everyone deserves Ayurveda. Please go and use your pharmaceuticals because I'm really not going to explain it to you. You take 10 steps toward Ayurveda to understand natural medicines and what ancient cultures did with botany, with plants, and with the, the products that they created. You take 10 steps toward Ayurveda. Ayurveda will take 20 steps towards you. So some of these formulations are so elaborate, but they are so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Triphala is one of them, right? Three trifola fruits, three fruits that are balancing your body. One of them cleans out the liver. One of them pushes everything forward. And one of them grabs all the excess mucus and tosses it out. So taking triphala is really good, but you can't take it every day because it will start not to work. And you have to know what to take it with. It will have a different effect if you take it with ghee than if you take it with milk, than if you take it with honey, than if you take it with water. And so that's also pharmacology, that carrier. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, right? Yeah. So and it talks about the tastes and it says the next thing you want to do is make sure that the person has a sense of appetite and taste, that they're hungry. If they're not, you cannot treat their pain. Oh, Because they must have... We call it an osmia, right? We know about this now. You can't smell or you can't taste. egusia you can't taste. And those, those um, smell and taste receptors that are in the nose and mouth are very important for the hunger because again, it programs up to the brain and down to the digestive enzymes. And if that doesn't happen, then we can't get rid of the toxins that are in the body. And we can't pull out the toxins from that shoulder that's in pain. Or that leg that's in pain, and so the idea of having simple foods that increase your appetite, increase your fire, and get rid of toxins is kind of a
0: backbone of how we treat pain. Was that? That's amazing. Was that? That's, understandable. That's exactly. That, yeah, it's totally understandable and just fascinating. Well, um, where can you? Where can uh, listeners learn more about Ayurveda? and more about your your own work, where where can we send them to to find out more? Well, right now I'm only doing
1: telemedicine because I'm obviously here in Udupi. So I will be back whenever the gods above decide that (laughs) um, there's no more protests and no more militant armies inhabiting our city. And when we can actually get across international borders, until then the internet is open. So telemedicine, you can make appointments with me. They can go to my website, which is dr. And then my first name, which I think you'll have in your, um, we'll have that
0: in the, in the title. Mm-hmm.
2: And if they want to learn, you know, when I started learning, I was an allopathic doctor with a lab, like a bench lab background, right? I didn't have, um, a lot of understanding of Ayurveda. And I actually learned from the film that you mentioned. I went and I saw things working and I said, oh my gosh, I have to I have to do this. This is so amazing. So I found people that couldn't figure out where to get started. And I was looking for a book that would get people started at step one, ground one. And because I couldn't find it, I started writing that book. And that That's book great. actually came out. Should I show you this book? Yeah, so it's show called like. Yeah this is it so um it's my little baby um so i wrote it while i was doing my phd sitting in benares and it's about the daily routine and how to start from the morning all the way to the end of the day you probably already do about 10 or 15 of the 42 things that are listed but it tells you what you should do the order you should do it in and why and in there you should fit in your meals according to your lifestyle according to the seasons according to your body weight, according to that fire that you have in your gut and how hungry you are, according to your daily news, which is your poop that's in the toilet, that you should look at before you flush, because that tells you the output of what your system is doing, and it sets you up so that you can use Ayurveda and understand the basic concept. So I wrote it because I want intelligent laypersons to be able to understand Ayurveda the way that the technical people understand it because people should be able to take foods and use them as medicine, and they should be able to reorient their lives so that every piece of feedback they're getting is telling them, yes, I feel a little bit better rather than, oh, I'm depressed, I'm sad, I don't know what to do.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And it's a a beautiful book and uh, lots of great... Um, lessons and um, information around the history of this um, fascinating system of medicine in there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great speaking with you.
2: Thank you for
0: having me. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. To learn more, visit our website at foodiepharmacology.com Or you can watch this episode and others on YouTube at the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.